0: Well, military tactics for a long time forbade the shooting of officers by enemy soldiers. During the Battle of Brandywine, as an example, during the Revolutionary War, a British soldier had an opportunity to shoot General Washington, but refused to do so because it would not be, quote, gentlemanly. However, a guy named Morgan formed a band of sharpshooters which evolved into the modern sniper, and they recognized that with such an inferior force as the colonialists or the Americans had, one of the ways to capture advantage is to eliminate the officers and thus weaken the enemy force through the lack of leadership. Additionally, those enemy officers sat atop of horses with bright red coats which provided an excellent target for those with long guns. It was considered despicable and a violation of conventional standards of the day for a professional army. And one of the resentments by the professional army of Britain was the rag tag, ungentlemanly, unsophisticated band of renegades that was represented by the colonial army. Now, Satan recognizes that leaders provide the greatest target for mischief in the church. The principle that we have is that if he can strike an elder, luring, tempting, seducing, illegitimizing, compromising him, he can weaken and defeat the effectiveness of an entire church. The Lord Jesus said that the church is going to prevail, the gates of hell will not prevail. But Satan, with an inferior power to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, will take out the officers, if you will, and thereby compromise many within the church. Some of you have been in churches where leadership has been compromised. Their moral integrity has been, or I should, I should say, their moral lack of integrity has been exposed. And your own faith has stumbled as you've seen such behavior and antics. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13:7. He said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That is very commonly true. The antithesis of this principle is given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, where it, it talks about the reality that, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure the salvation both of yourself and for those who hear you. So if a spiritual leader is growing spiritually... And possesses integrity, the product of that will be people who are likewise growing closer to Christ. So it's essential that leadership in a church have integrity, that they love Christ, that they're following Christ, that their testimonies are sterling, not in a facade of godliness, but as a Exuding of that which is within them, right? That there is this awareness that there's integrity there. This is the importance of the church. Hence, if faithfulness to the truth will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you, then unfaithfulness to the truth will ensure the falling away for those who hear you. Hence, Paul realizes that if shepherds fall, many will fall away. Therefore, it is necessary that spiritual leaders be men of integrity in whom exists a clear manifestation of grace. And our text today emphasizes that there are aspects of a spiritual leader's reputation that are essential. These are essential things. Follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses, well, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. We'll stop there. There are more that is said, but we'll deal with that in subsequent week. But we want to look at four um, qualifications for an elder that are essential in his reputation. Four in these two verses that we find here. Number one, he must be free from indictment. Free from indictment. Then he must be free from imbalance, Thirdly, he must be free from ignorance. And fourthly, he must be free from indulgence. Okay, so we'll look at these four and see what the scriptures have to say about these things. Let me just pause for a moment and just make a general comment. Ladies, these characteristics ought to be yours as well. This isn't just for men, nor is this just for leaders. None of us should be pugnacious, None of us should have a love of money. None of us should be drunkards, right? N- none of us. So this, these aren't the apex of spiritual achievement. If you will, this is the bottom rung that you can't climb the ladder if you don't have at least these qualifications, right? So this, this, is, a, this is a low bar. This is not some high bar. This is a low bar, and it's essential that these characteristics be those things after which all believers are pressing simply for a consistent godly testimony so don't view these as yeah this is for the this is for the elders this is only for the elders no it's necessary for elders to at least have these qualifications now hopefully elders will have many more glorious characteristics that would remind you of Jesus right so that as a man is growing in grace and in his relationship with the Lord and is becoming more Christ-like, the sweet aroma of Christ will be even more aromatic and delightful. Right? That's, that's the idea. So don't think that these are, yeah, well, I'm going to check out because this is for elders. No, it's for all of us. And so we want to make that perfectly clear. First of all, we see the issue of freedom from indictment freedom from indictment. Now, essentially, we said last time that there were two qualifications for an elder or a spiritual leader, only two. Number one, we saw in verse one, which is the desire. The desire for the office, for the ministry. And that desire is created by a man delighting himself in the Lord and the Lord then giving him the desire to serve him. And so that desire is something that no one can assess except the individual man. I can't come up to someone and say, uh, I can't come up to Ryan and say, Ryan, you you desire the office of elder. I do. Oh, okay. No, that's not the way it works. It would be, Ryan, I see God's mercy and grace in your life. Has he stirred a desire for you to serve him in spiritual leadership? Yea or nay. Actually, he has, but I'm not certain that I qualify. Well, that's for us to determine. All we want to know from you is do you have the desire? That's the first qualification. If a man doesn't have the desire, it doesn't matter how reputable reputable he is. It doesn't matter how godly he is. If God has not stirred the desire within him, he should not be compelled, constrained, uh, consigned, Um, conscripted to do it. It should be something that is his desire. right? The other qualification, and I said there are two, the one is the subjective um, desire that only he can identify. The other qualification is the objective reputation that he possesses and how other people Perceive him, because a man that could have a desire and his heart is deceitful of, of all things and desperately wicked, and think that I qualify it. I'm godly and I'm consistent, but everybody else around you is saying, mm, "No, you're not consistent." There are things in your life that stick out, things that people can take a hold of and accuse you of, and so on, and so you don't qualify, even though you have a desire. You don't have the reputation, and so it's only when a person has the desire. And the rest of the church observe the life and are reminded of the Christ likeness that exists in that person, that he is blameless, that he qualifies. So that's why verse 2 says An overseer then must be above reproach, above reproach. He cannot be indicted. That is the issue. Given the role of overseers and what they provide to the integrity and strength of the church by means of influences that have eternal consequences, Paul states, it is necessary. He must be, as the scripture here tells us, he must be above reproach. That phrase, must be, is an essential necessity, something that is non-negotiable. An elder or a spiritual leader, an overseer, must be beyond reproach. Now, the emphasis here is that God has a standard for leaders that can only be compromised to the detriment of the church. So if you compromise the standards that God has identified and set, and you say, well, you know, it, it really doesn't matter, then the church knows Spiritual detriment. It's inevitable. As we look at the qualifications for spiritual leaders, we must recognize that no church is free to determine what these qualifications are. God has dictated that if a church is to be strong, it must have leaders characterized by these things. So God has determined this. The notion that anyone who wants to serve ought to be able to serve is unbiblical. Certainly. A desire to serve is the subjective aspect, as I mentioned, of a qualified spiritual leader, but that is between God and the man, something only the individual can assess. No leader, no leader ought to be compelled to serve if God has not stirred that desire within him. But elders cannot serve under compulsion, but must do so voluntarily. That's what First Peter 5, 2 declares. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So there needs to be this heart that says, I want to serve. However, as I mentioned, simply having the desire without the objective qualifications falls short of the divine standard necessary for a man to serve the church. And many a man has yearned to be, quote, in charge, but their spiritual maturity prevents it, or immaturity prevents it. So we also have the, uh, not only the, the requirement for overseers, but you have the reputation of overseers. Hence, God has made this second qualification over an overseer, describing the reputation and objective element in setting a man into this office. So he has the desire, subjective, and he must be beyond reproach or above reproach as the objective assessment of the church in general. It is necessary that he be above reproach. Now, it's interesting that this word above reproach, the emphasis is on the absence of guilt. This word is a, is a word that basically means having no handles, no projections of ungodliness that stick out onto which someone can grab and use as a club to beat you, right? That's, that's the idea. There's nothing in your life that sticks out as an anomaly to godliness. There's no characteristic that, that you possess that would cause somebody to say, yeah, they say they follow Christ, but look at that. Right? Now, this does not mean that elders cannot err because we're sinners like you are. We're in need of grace like you are. We never should be proud, haughty, arrogant, uh, pompous, um, or any of those things, because we need grace every day just like you do. But if there is something that has become characteristic of us, not as an incidental error, but as a trend that is observed in a person's life, then that results in a handle that people can grab a hold of and beat you with it right that is make accusation against you and that's this word essentially this means that his life has not been marred by some obvious sinful defect in character which would preclude him from setting the highest standard for godly conduct that is what is expected of elders of leaders of overseers his life must not provide an opportunity for satan first of all to discredit the gospel an elder needs to be a credit to grace, not a discredit of grace. He can't be a, somebody that, that a person looks at and say, yeah, well, where's the grace of God in his life? I mean, that, that's in, inappropriate. And Satan is constantly looking for opportunities to discredit the gospel in those who say they follow Christ. Secondly, his life must be ready to endure the stricter judgment of which we are warned, right? Do not be many teachers, knowing that we are under stricter judgment. Are they under stricter judgment? So God is going to hold accountable with a stricter judgment, which I believe refers to consequences. He expects all of us to comply with the standards of godliness. This isn't, isn't saying, well, the rest of us can get away with it. No, no. He's going to hold everybody accountable for godliness. But there is a stricter consequence for elders when they sin and uh, when their lives are, have uh, inconsistency with the word of God. And then thirdly, his life must not disprove in conduct what he teaches in word, because then what he teaches in word loses credibility. There's no power in that. Um, Richard Baxter, in a book called The Reformed Pastor, said this, that his life must be such that is consistent and blameless, lest you unsay with your life what you say with your tongue. So you don't want to unsay with your life what you say with your tongue. In Titus chapter 1 the term above reproach means not just the absence of guilt. It's a different term. So Paul talks to Timothy and he uses this negative reference that is without handles. In Titus, the idea of above reproach has a positive note that your life is, uh, has no guilt, that it is there's the presence of an unmarred reputation. In Colossians chapter one, verse 22, it says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach, nothing present that would cause accusation of imperfection, right? That's where all of us are destined to be above reproach, ultimately when we're conformed to the image of Christ. So we're going to be presented before God, um, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. And on this side of glory, the progress toward that end must be notable among spiritual leaders. They must be leading to this end through their lives being conformed to Christ as examples of what all of us ought to be striving to do. This is uh, unfortunately Um, We have reached a period in church history where uh, evangelicalism prefers to have men who are marred instead of having them be beyond reproach or above reproach, or as our text says, um, blameless, right? Instead of having such men, they prefer to have men who are marred, men who are failures, strugglers, fellow strugglers not with reference to consistent victory over the struggle because we are all fellow strugglers, let's not be mistaken but elders and leaders are fellow strugglers strugglers who are demonstrating grace in overcoming but modern evangelicalism is preferring fellow strugglers who are miserably failing like everyone else for two reasons. Number one it enables them or us to have our own consciences assuaged well nobody can do this and so if you have a spiritual leader who is walking in grace it causes those who are not walking in grace to feel indicted and so in order to evade the indictment we want spiritual leaders who will walk like us struggling failing sinning and then they are able to relate Right? That's the second reason that, that it, it enables us to feel like a pastor or an elder can relate to us. You know, these pie in the sky, these ivory tower, these untouchables that are the spiritual leaders. No one can be like them. They're freaks of, of spirituality, right? That they're, they're, they're just odd people. Obviously, they have an anointing. They have the spirit of God, special measure. They have all this when that's not true. We are as you are. We have the same temptations. We have the same struggles. We have the same natures. We have the same uh, opportunities to struggle as you have. And yet there is the victory that God has given to the men of God that, in whom he has worked to provide examples so that you can be as we are. And so you want men who are consistently setting that standard of example You do not want men who are wallowing with you in the muck. You want men who are able to provide you ropes and help pull you out of that onto level ground, right? So that's why it is necessary, as the scriptures declare, that men be blameless, above reproach, as we have seen, free from indictment. So we don't want not only Christians to be able to accuse spiritual leaders of aberrant behavior and inconsistent conduct to Christ. We don't want the world to look at elders and see a discredit to the gospel. And so it's essential that it's necessary, as the scriptures say, that these men have these qualifications, of both the desire to serve and blamelessness in serving. Okay, so that's the free from indictment. Secondly, they are free from imbalance. They are free from imbalance. And there are five qualifications we find here in chapter three, verse two, that I wanna address with you. Um, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, this, this is, these are matters that demonstrate balance in life, that there's an equilibrium that exists that keeps you straight, right? The first is the husband of one wife. Literally, this means a one-woman man, a one-woman man. Now, there are five general interpretations that are kicked around of this phrase. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, he cannot be divorced, That's one persuasion. A one-woman man, you cannot be divorced because if you're divorced, you've had two wives, you're known as a two-woman man. That's the argument. Secondly, he cannot remarry if he's widowed. So there are people who say that if a man's wife dies, he can't marry again because if he marries again, then he's had two women. So he can't be a remarried widower. I'm not saying I agree with these. I'm just telling you this is what they are, right? Number three, he can have one wife at a time, right? So he can only have one wife at a time, which would fix up the widower and would fix up the divorcee, right? So you can just have one wife at a time. Fourthly, he must be married that a single man is not permitted to serve in this position would be the interpretation of some. And the fifth one is that he can only have one wife who's living. Now, I assume that he would not be party to the first wife's death, but um, he can only have one wife that is living, right? That's the next one. However, the essence of this qualification, I don't think should be pushed to those persuasions. In other words, I don't think any of those persuasions really is the best way to look at this. The essence of this qualification is that he is, hear this, renown as a man who demonstrates devotion to one woman for life, his or hers, whichever ends first. Um, it's It's the notion for as long as we both shall live, and that's the kind of man he is. This bans a womanizer. This bans a man whose eyes are constantly prowling for satisfaction from the attention of females, right? It bans a man who makes women uncomfortable around them, right? So an elder, you should be a woman who can approach an elder and not feel like, oh my goodness, I'm getting vibes here, right? I'm getting like, oh, he's, he's looking at me in a kind of a, weird way. Creeper, you know, kind of a thing. You can't look at an elder like a creeper. A man who looks you over, a man who is delighting in you, a man who is lusting after you. There is that verse in Second 2 Peter 2.14 where Peter is describing false teachers, unqualified men, and one of the characteristics is that they have eyes that are full of adultery, that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, and the greed there is not monetarily greedy. It's morally greedy, meaning sensually thirsty or hungry that are constantly craving more sexual um, promotion. Um, that That's not... An elder can't be this guy. He has to be a man who, when a woman comes up to him, her, cons- her constant awareness is he has eyes for his wife alone. He's not, I'm not in danger. I'm not being violated. I'm not being threatened. I'm not being made to feel uncomfortable. He is clearly in love with his wife. I mean, it's just like she's the apple of his eye and everybody knows it. Right? That's the idea of the one-woman man. You must be renowned as a man who is devoted to one woman and not on the prowl, you know, kind of a thing. So it goes beyond, you know, somebody may say, well, I, I got married when I was 21, and I've had one wife, and so pew, good on that one. Maybe not. You might be given to pornography. You might be given to looking every woman you encounter over. You may be a, a person who is... Um, Fantasizing about others, you would not be qualified. That's not a one woman man. Translated here as the husband of one wife. The second one is temperate. Temperate. Literally, this word means wine less. Not that you've drained the bottle, and you have no more, but that you're not a person who is readily associated with wine. That's just not something that is part of your life. That doesn't forbid drinking. I mean, I, I, uh, th- no, nowhere in the Bible does it say you cannot drink. It just says you cannot get drunk, right? And in my life, and just to tell you, in my life, since the only way to get drunk is to drink drink. An intoxicating beverage, I just say, mm, don't need it. Just don't need it. So I don't do it. Now I'm not patting myself on the back like I'm some godly. I got plenty of ices, right? That's just not one of them. I don't need it, don't desire it, don't care. Somebody might say, well, you're missing a great experience of flavor and taste and, and um, a salivary delight or whatever. And I would say, yeah, okay, that's fine but i'd rather sacrifice that than risk becoming drunk so i'm just not i don't need it i don't i don't want it i don't need it i don't i don't i'm not missing anything necessarily um, it's the freedom really not just from wine because that becomes that that's something that is addressed again later where it says in verse 3 not addicted to wine but this word just says wine less is the notion or sober. Sober. You're a man who's renowned for being sober. And that sobriety it transcends out of simply alcohol, and it's the freedom from the excess of passions or extremes. You're renowned for restraint in your conduct through the exercise of self-control because you're clear-headed. This is the notion that there's never a cloudy moment in your life because you have overindulged whether it's in alcohol, whether it's in food, you know, you have your food coma or something because you've eaten so much. Um, no, that that's not who you are, that you can't be intemperate or not sober. You need to be sober and definitively sober and renowned for being sober. That, that's the idea, that you don't have excesses in one thing or another, that you are temperate, is the idea. Thirdly, is that you are prudent, prudent. This is the distillation of being sober, and that was intended to be a pun, um, and becomes a quality of being in control of yourself, thoughtful, to avoid extremes, so that your actions are responsible and are deliberately sought. So what you do is intentional, is the idea here of prudent? And the intention is to pursue righteousness and Christ likeness. And this idea um, is uh, that you consistently make good decisions because you think through things soberly and with an anticipation of the potential outcomes. So there's wisdom associated with this prudence that suggests that you're not an impulsive person, uh, given to whim, unpredictable. Um, My great desire is that I be predictable, that people are going to know, oh, I know what Pastor Rick will say. I I know what he'll say. I sought this as a parent. My great desire as a parent was for my children to anticipate, this is what dad will think, this is what dad will say. Even to the degree that if they came to me with a crisis or they came to me with a severe wrong that they have done, they know they can trust the way I was going to respond to them. I wasn't going to go off and go into a rant and just denounce them and belittle them and you know go after them. No, no, no. I would receive what they'd have to say, and they knew I was going to be prudent in the way I responded to them, temperate in the way I responded to them, sober, clear-headed, making calculated decisions with reference to the outcome and how I could best help them. That would have been, well, as a parent, but I have the same aspiration as a spiritual leader, as do all the spiritual leaders, that what we do thinks ahead, and that's the idea of prudent. Fourth layer D, is respectable. Now, this word respectable is interesting, because it's the same word, same root, that is used earlier for a woman who adorns herself. In chapter 2, we talked about the word is is where we get the word cosmetics. That this doesn't mean the man should put on cosmetics. It means that his life needs to be orderly. Like a woman who puts on cosmetics is making her face orderly and color orderly and everything's you know looking the way God intended it to be, not like a clown, you know, with all this paint, but orderly is the idea. Uh, And she is to adorn herself. And here we find a man who is orderly or well adorned. It it refers to uh, being characterized by qualities that evoke admiration or delight in your life. It's the opposite of having a life that's a mess. So we're not chaotic. We're not all over the place. We are orderly, methodical, organized, uh, attractive in that sense, in the sense that people look at the way you live and say, I can respect that. They may not agree with it, but they respect it because it is such that is demonstrating your intentional attempt to put life in order. Right? That uh, The word is from where we get cosmos, cosmetics, comes from cosmos, world, the solar system. That is among the most orderly and reliable and predictable thing ever, right? And that's this word that you put things in order and thus are respectable. And then E, hospitable, lovers of strangers. Um, It shows the kind of maturity that exists by the ability to extend oneself to others to include them in your life. In other words, somebody who is not native to you, that is not normally in your home, that you have the ability to joyfully, readily extend your home to people who are not naturalized in your home, right? So they're able to come into your home and that you extend yourself to include others in your life. It avoids seeking to preserve one's solitude at all costs like your house is your castle and you have a moat and a drawbridge and archers on the parapets to slay anyone seeking to encroach upon the privacy of your domain. No, no. There is the desire of a spiritual leader to open himself up with his home for all to see and all to enjoy. It was interesting um, not too long ago, there, uh, there was a joke made around my table by someone who talks about anybody can use our house because everybody knows the code to get into it. So many people have the code that you can just push in the code and get into my house. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is from here <laughs> because I have no idea who's seeing this, but um, if I love you, I'll give you the code. You can go into my house. You can watch my TV. You can look at my computer. You can check my uh, bureau drawers. You can do whatever you want to do. Rifle through the desks. That's fine. You're not going to find anything there. Not that I've hidden it sufficiently, but because there's nothing there to find that would, I, that would embarrass me. Um, Say Possibly the letters I wrote when I was 19 to my wife. Uh, Leave those alone. (laughs) But the idea is that you don't have anything to hide. You're not protecting yourself. You're transparent. You're open. Your house is open. People are welcome. There's no problem. This is something we seek to have characterized even uh, within our church generally, and it doesn't have to be your home. Let's say this is our home as an assembly of believers, That we come here, this is our house, if you will, as saints. We occupy it together as a family. And then what do we do with people who come in here from outside who are not naturalized here? A visitor, somebody who's here for the first time, somebody who is seeking Christ, perhaps. Do we look at them and go, huh, they're new, and go to talk to your friends? Or do you... Exercise hospitality, and you go to them, and you welcome them. Hey, it's good to see you. You know, and for some of you, you're hesitant to do that because so many people are coming so quickly that we don't know who is new and not right. So, and we have two services, and they may. Be, and, and it's it, it's cringeworthy when you go up to somebody. Hey, hello, nice to have you here. Is this your first time here? No, I've been coming here six months. <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, and you skulk away, embarrassed. No, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Six months, great. You, you should get a t-shirt. I endured six months. It's not bad. There is the need to be hospitable. All of these characteristics provide a blamelessness on the part of an elder pertaining to various imbalances, that there's not a a uh, sense that there is an extreme in any direction in these things, but there's an imbalance. There's a, there's a balance in in my love for my wife, in my ability to be sober minded, prudent in my decision making, respectable as I'm orderly and hospitable. Now, I should say, with reference to respectable meaning orderliness, there is obsessive compulsive disorders, right? that aren't respectable to where you become so inflexible that because everything needs to be just right, that turns people away. That, that becomes something that people don't find attractive at all. So balance in these things is what is necessary. So freedom from imbalance. Secondly, or pardon me, thirdly, is the freedom from ignorance. Freedom from ignorance And in this sense, we see able to teach as the qualification here. And there's an interest in the truth. First of all, for a spiritual leader, they must clearly have an interest in the truth. The anomaly in all these characteristics is this one, which is a skill where all the rest of them are moral qualities. So this is the one that sticks out. You know, in an IQ test, here are four things, which one doesn't belong? Um, is, is very a very consistent question in an in, in, in intelligence quotient test. Well, if we're going to take this test, this is the one that doesn't belong. This is kind of an odd characteristic. It has, that reality has led some to claim that this term refers to not the ability to teach, but the ability to be taught. In other words, you're teachable. That would mean you're not a know-it-all, right? So a spiritual leader, if that were to be the case, should not be a know-it-all. And that would bring it into alignment with the other ones that it's a moral qualification. However, the only other place it is used, it clearly refers to the ability to impart knowledge to someone else. So we probably wouldn't choose teachable, but would allow it to remain able to teach, given 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 where it says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. There is the same word in the only other place it's used. And in the context, it seems clear that it is a reference to able to open the word of God and teach other people. However, what is true inevitably of a person who is able to teach, but that they must learn what it is that they'll be teaching? So if you're going to be able to teach, that means at some point you had to be taught because you're not coming up with your own information. Otherwise, you'll be thrown out of the church, right? Because the responsibility of an elder or a teacher is to teach the word. And so you had to have been taught. So even though the word does not mean teachable, it begs the reality that you are teachable in the fact that you have something else to offer. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse two, this notion is seen, where it says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you hear it from me, you learn it from me, and you take it and you teach it to men who are hearing it from you, who turn around and teach other men who are gonna hear it from them, And on and on and on, the stewardship of truth goes from spiritual leader to spiritual leader to spiritual leader as the truth is held, uh, clung to, and passed along. This qualification does not mean that an elder must have the gift of teaching Um, but that they are familiar enough with the truth that they can explain it and disciple others into the truth. So it may not be that all elders need to be able to stand up here and preach as I am or possess the spiritual gift of teaching. In fact, I think it's really helpful for a church to have representation of all of the spiritual gifts within it. So some of the elders are gifted with mercy. Some of the elders are gifted with administration, exhortation, giving, giving, that would be helpful, teaching, and so on, that all of the gifts be represented. That would be ideal within the eldership, but that despite the fact that they may not be gifted supernaturally with the spiritual gift of teaching, they are able to teach in terms of imparting information, perhaps not in a assembly. Maybe their gift of, or their role of teaching would be best exercised one-on-one, as they take men under their wing and encourage and exhort and disciple, right? Which requires teaching um, so that there would be that, that aspect of it as well. So there's the interest in the truth of being taught and learning what it is that you ultimately will be teaching. But then there's also obviously the, imparti- uh, the imparting of truth. This, the, and there are two aspects to the activity associated with being able to teach. First, there's the proactive exhortation of the flock in sound doctrine. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So you find here two aspects of this idea of, of sound doctrine. Number one, an, uh, a spiritual leader or an elder needs to be able to refute, meaning to scrutinize and examine carefully and bring something to light or expose it. So an elder needs to have discernment and being able to say, that's wrong, that's not true because of this. And you have the ability to clarify what the word of God actually does say. So there's some... Conversational, or I should say, the an elder needs to be conversant in the truth, right, and be able to recognize what's errant. And uh, the idea here is uh, refuting those who contradict. This word means to speak against uh, or to contradict. Recently, um, in the for the women's um, conference, there was something that was contradictory to our doctrine. But and if, you, if you would rate the content of the book, 99% of the book is excellent, and yet they make a statement that contradicts something that we teach. And so instead of throwing the whole book out, I just said, let's put a disclaimer in the front of it and say, you know, uh, here's where this contradicts us. Just read with discernment, because the 99%, we didn't want to rob the ladies of exposure. So that's an example. To be able to read something, that is inconsistent with what we teach. And this is what God's word says about that, which is why that's wrong. Okay, refuting what's contradictory. And so that's a form of teaching. It doesn't have to be an oration in front of a group of people where you are promulgating the truth of God's word. It could be a discipleship level. It could be in a small group level. It could be in a a context other than the general assembly where you're imparting truth. Nevertheless, you need to be free from ignorance, meaning you're a student of the word, you're a teachable person who is constantly learning, not only from those immediately in in spiritual leadership around you, but from men who have lived hundreds of years ago who have things to say to us and that God can use to inform us as to what his word says, that we're constantly being enriched in the word of God. By so great a cloud of witnesses, right? So um, the impartation, the interest in truth, the impartation of truth. And then finally, the freedom from indulgence. Freedom from indulgence. And this is in in verse three. There are five things here. Um, You're not addicted to wine. This literally means that you don't tarry long beside wine. That's what this word literally means that you don't tarry long beside wine. This characteristic describes a person who is not giving, given to drinking too much. Um, a drunkard, I believe, is the way that the ESV translates it, that you're not a drunkard, meaning somebody who is consistently finding yourself overindulging. In Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7, it says... And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. There is this awareness that a person who is given to wine, who lingers long before wine, who is a person who becomes intoxicated, Uh, does not render good judgment. It keeps you from being sober-minded. It keeps you from being temperate and prudent. It keeps you from having the ability to maintain your commitment to your one wife. Wine is a means by which so many of the qualifications of a spiritual leader are compromised that it is wise for a spiritual leader to, A, think think hard about whether to drink. And if you find yourself with a conscience free to drink, ensuring that you don't drink too much, right? That you are an individual who is not known as a man who regularly or consistently gets drunk. Now, it's not drunk to the point where the government says you can't drive, right? The .08 or whatever it is. It might be the point four that just gives you a, a really weird sense of humor, or that, you know, you just get overly friendly, um, or you giggle, or get a little harsh. Maybe you're not staggering, you just get harsh. You're a mean drunk, but at whatever point you are, you're under the influence of it, right? So you have to really see that as something that's significant. If you're going to be a spiritual leader, you have to be careful about that. A spiritual leader must be a man whose associations, even in his diet, are radically different from those of the world and whose example leads others to righteous conduct, not into sinful conduct. So, even by your example, are you advocating for righteousness? Um, B is pugnacious. Literally, it's not a giver of blows. This is the man who expresses violent behavior, easily provoked into an altercation. It's a man who bullies others through intimidation and outbursts of hostility. It's a leader that, a spiritual leader must not indulge in his anger, but is able to calmly and meekly respond to wrongs in a way that persuades others of the benefits of grace. A pugnacious man. Now, this is one that I have to be careful about, pugnacity, because it can often be associated with the joy that I take in a healthy, robust, and even intense debate. I like that. I like debate. It fertilizes my mind. It gets me going. So I like to argue. And that can be perceived as pugnacity. And so I have to really be careful about this one, um, that people don't see. uh, I think the key there is that you're not being perceived as a bully, right? Somebody who bullies other people through... um, your arguments and other things. I think that's important. That, that's not an elder. Uh, the word literally means you're not a giver of blows. You don't beat on people. Whether it's fisticuffs or whether it's uh, a tongue lashing or verbal um, trouncing of someone which leads into C is gentle. It refers to the man who does not insist on absolute and immediate conformity to every letter of the law, but is tolerant and courteous and such a one does not hold a grudge. This, this person, you know, you can be really harsh and austere and black and white and insisting on conformity. A gentle man gives latitude while seeking to bring conformity, right? That's the idea. It's not that you're okay with with um, Um, deviants. that's that's not it. But a gentleman has the ability to take someone who is deviant and seek to bring them into convention, which would be the opposite of deviant, deviating from that which is expected. D is peaceable without a machete. That's what this word means. You're you're not walking around loaded with with a machete. Um, You're not armed for battle. A spiritual leader must be one who is more interested in unity and conciliation than fighting against others and hacking them down. Um, You're peaceable. And then obviously, free from the root love of money, a man who is not covetous or materialistic, it is the love of money that lays at the heart of those engaged in it into false teaching. False teachers all have a common denominator. They want to get rich off the truth. When the love of money exists in a spiritual leader, it results in the inevitable straying from the truth and causing many heartaches and disappointments. In 1 Timothy 6.10, the scripture says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When these characteristics are present in a spiritual leader, it provides handles onto which critics can lay hold and make indictments of hypocrisy, of imbalance, of ignorance, of indulgence and a spiritual leader must be renowned as being free from these things lest a handle pop up and people are able to grab hold of it and illegitimize what you're striving to see achieved through grace which is the pursuit of Christ right so these are things that are required essential reputations that a spiritual leader must have. Now, let me give you a couple of uh, so what's. Number one, what handles stick out in my life and reputation unto which others might take hold? Ask yourself that question. What handles stick out? Just based on these things that we've talked about so far. Is there anything that sticks out and say, oh, man, if my life were to be evaluated, there'd be this handle, this handle, and this handle, or maybe just that one. Maybe just this handle would be a problem. Well, don't say, oh, well, and shrug and walk away. Do something to bring yourself into a greater compliance with grace. Submit yourself to the Lord and draw near and see the work of God in your life to eliminate those handles. Number two, and it's similar to it, what imbalances exist in my life? Where am I imbalanced? What am I doing that's extreme or to the left, or to the right of what God's word actually says? What imbalances exist that I should address? Number three, in what ways can I become more interested in the truth and being taught? Can I be more teachable? How can I become more teachable? That would be a good question. Way to apply this. Number four, are there ways in which I indulge in anything that would disqualify me from spiritual leadership? Should the opportunity be mine? And ladies, this would be true for you as well. Um, what would disqualify you from being able to lead other women in the ways of Christ? And then number five, if I were to ask someone very close to me, say a spouse or a parent or a child or whomever, how can I become more blameless? What would the response be? And what should you do about it? Here's the question. Why make them tell you if you can identify it yourself? Identify it. Change it. So that those people that you would otherwise rely on to tell you what's wrong would have the ability to observe the transformation that grace is bringing and bring glory to Christ for what he's doing in your life. All this to say that ultimately, there are aspects of a spiritual leader's reputation that are essential. And let us as a congregation to the saint pursue those things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask you that you would help us as people of God to aspire to be more like Christ and that these qualifications would be ours. If there is anyone here today who has never turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, we pray that they would do so and believe, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.